0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, Revelation. (laughs) As I prepare this, I go, what have I done that made myself teach Revelation? I don't know if you can read if the text is, oh, it's kind of cut off as well. Oops, sorry, thought I fixed that. Anyways, you have the handout, it's identical, okay? So just look on your handout and you'll see what's up here. I begin with a quote, my favorite quote regarding the book of Revelation. G.K. Chesterton says, And though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. (laughs) People have done many strange things with the book of Revelation. The focus of this class is not to give you every detail of every book of the Bible, but just to prepare you as you yourself read through the scriptures when you come to the book of Revelation. We don't want anyone to go, I've got to skip this one. This one I don't understand and I'm moving on. I want to urge you not to do that. It's true, many people have done many odd things with the book of Revelation. Find almost any Christian cult anywhere through all time, and they love this book. (laughs) They're just drawn to it. But you know what? Forget them. We're snagging the book back. This is for us as believers. This is a very precious book of the Bible. And the hope I want to give you right now is you don't have to understand every part of Revelation for you to love this book, benefit from this book, be nourished by this book, even come, like myself, to find this as one of the most precious books of the New Testament. It can be confusing, but that doesn't have to be your primary experience with the book of Revelation. You know that there have been um, many theories coming out of the book of Revelation, kind of going along with this quote. I was not alive in 1980, but for those of you who were, I know that one theory was that Ronald Wilson Reagan, whose first, middle, and last name consist of six letters each, was elected on May the 4th, 1980 to office, happened to be on that very same day in Maryland, a winning lottery number, 666. And there were people then, genuinely, sorry, maybe this was you as well, I don't agree with this, okay? There were people who adamantly, wholeheartedly, sincerely believed Ronald Reagan bore within himself the mark of the beast. You have a lot of other theories when it comes to 666, Mark of the Beast, Antichrist, even if you go back to the, Re- the Reformation. Martin Luther, who um, we won't get into it, but Martin Luther actually didn't like the book of Revelation. There was still some confusion at his time since he was kind of getting away from the, a lot of the trickery of the Roman Catholic Church that he had been under, trying to figure out what's true, what's not here. Unfortunately, that included a little bit of the canon of the Bible. So famously, Luther didn't like the book of James, thought of it as an epistle of straw. And the other book he didn't like was Revelation. However, Luther himself was given to lots of very interesting speculations. And as the Reformation got underway, he believed that the Pope was not an antichrist He believed the Pope was the Antichrist and that Jesus would definitely return in Luther's own day. He saw the end times playing out Not like these are the last days, but like these are the last of the last days and Jesus will return because now the word of God's free, Roman Catholic Church is falling, it's the end. The reason um, that mattered was because the worst thing Luther ever did in his whole life was toward the end of it when he wrote a scathing treatise against the Jews. And it's a horrible, horrible piece. But a part of the reason he did that was because he believed the Jews not repenting in mass, is what prevented Jesus from returning as He expected to happen in His lifetime. So, end times matter, okay? And We don't want to come up with interesting, we don't want to be wild monsters with our speculations like the commentators G.K. Chesterton talks about. So how are you going to approach the book of Revelation? What are you going to do with it? Well, just so you know, there are four main ways to approach the book of Revelation, personally I think that some combination of all of these is necessary on a sort of case-by-case basis, although I lean into one of these more than other ones. There are fancy names for these, but I'm giving you the non-fancy names, because you probably don't need them, might not remember them. One way to approach the book of Revelation is as something that happened in the past, so it happened. The fancy name for this is called preterism, and it's the view that everything you find, or I should... That's strict preterism. There's some who hold that many of the things that you find in the book of Revelation have already happened. They happened in the early church. They happened in the Roman Empire. So 666 refers to Nero primarily. There's a way to configure his name to mean 666. And those things have happened, or at least much of those things have already happened. So that's one way to read the book of Revelation. Some people do. If you think everything in Revelation happened, um, That's heresy, but you can think some things happened, and that's the way some approach it. Second way of approaching it is it's happening. The word for this is historicism, and this would be what John MacArthur talks about not doing, (laughs) newspaper eschatology, where you look in the newspaper for what's going on, and then you connect it to events in Revelation. So back in Daniel or Ezekiel, that beast from the north that's going to be Russia, and this is going to be this, and refer to this, and this is the mark of the beast, and there are nanochips, and a certain... That's historicism. So that's when you're reading the book of Revelation, you're looking for it happening right now. That's a way some people approach the book of Revelation. There's another view. It always happens. This is called idealism, and this is a view uh, oftentimes held more by those of us. Presbyterian nature, maybe, or millennial view, if that makes sense. But this view is that there are ideals or ideas that are presented in the book of Revelation, and they apply all the time. It's good versus evil. It's the archetypal story of good versus evil, and you see this all the time. Okay, so that's one way to approach it. So we're not looking for a specific event necessarily, but it's idealized. And lastly, the futurist view that it will happen, meaning most of what we read in Revelation refers to historical events but they haven't happened yet. Here at Faith Bible Church, that's our primary way of approaching the book of Revelation is we believe, because it just seems to say it kind of (laughs) clearly, maybe that's not fair to other positions, but it's talking about the future. The angel comes to John to tell him about the things that will take place. And you get to the end of the book of Revelation, that the Lord is coming soon, amen, come Lord Jesus, this stuff's going to happen. And we read Revelation and go, no matter, almost, I mean, if you just take a straightforward reading of it, a lot of this does not appear to have happened yet. And so that is futurism, it will happen. Like I said, you don't have to pick one of these to the complete exclusion of all the others. So, for example, chapter 1, everyone agrees, already happened. It was John on the island of Patmos having a vision of Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago. So, we all agree that happened in the past. Also, in terms of things that are happening, chapters 2 and 3 are letters to the churches, and there are things that apply, and we use those today for ourselves, or not then, but it applies even to us today. So there's something we should read in Revelation in reference to the present, but like I said, most of what we find in Revelation on a sort of what we'd consider a grammatical historical interpretation, a sort of straightforward reading, there's a lot of symbolism, we'll get to that, but the most straightforward reading we can approach the book with seems to say most all of this is still in the future and we're waiting for it. Someone might respond to that and say, well, then why read this? It's no benefit. It hasn't happened yet. But let me just remind you that Old Testament prophecies pointing to Jesus didn't happen in their lifetime, and it still wasn't useless, right? So it's helpful for us to have references to the future, even if it hasn't happened yet. The big question in all of Revelation when you read it, and this is the big question for everyone, no matter how you approach it, what's symbolic and what's literal? I'm using the word literal in the way we usually use it. Technically, if this matters to you, literal means according to the literary genre. And the literary genre of Revelation is apocalyptic. It's an apocalypse. So actually, when something's a symbol in Revelation, you're still technically reading it literally according to the apocalyptic genre. But you can push all that aside because that's all big words and who cares at the moment. What I want to emphasize is Some parts in Revelation, everyone pretty much agrees, are symbolic. We're going to see the seven spirits of God. Nobody, except weird heretics out there maybe, believe there's actually seven spirits of God. There's one Holy Spirit, and we all agree seven is a number of completion. So one way to talk about the perfection of the Spirit in symbolic language is to refer to the seven spirits of God. So everyone agrees, us, everyone that there's symbolism in this book. When it talks about locusts and it describes them in depth, is that symbolic? Probably, yeah. Probably it is. Again, there's symbolism within this book. So how much is symbolic? How much is literal and just to be taken as it is? Everyone agrees, everyone, that there are parts of Revelation to be taken literally when John's on the island of Patmos, you don't have to go, hmm, Patmos, that is a metaphor for the ancient Rome. That, that must mean that... No, everyone reads it and goes, Patmos, actual literal island a long time ago. What we want to do in approaching Revelation is this. It's the same way we approach any book of the Bible. Begin, begin, even with this genre, begin here at the middle with the most straightforward reading possible that's where you start. Start there. So if it's talking about the locust, or it's talking about trumpets being blown, or it's talking about angels doing this or doing that, or John being sucked up into heaven, or whatever it may be, we always start with the most straightforward reading. And then we ask, in light of everything else we know in Scripture, is it likely that that's the intention of the author right there? If not, okay, seven spirits of God. Most straightforward reading is that there are seven Holy Spirits. Then you have to ask, does that make sense in light of the rest of Scripture? And everyone says, no, no, it does not. That does not make any sense. <laughs> that is not true. So then we extend outward and go, is there a symbolical meaning? And even these, Scripture guides us because when Scripture uses the word seven, it doesn't just mean we're something random. It usually means perfection. So then we go, okay, so now we're at a symbolic meaning. But you see how we started here? The danger is if you read Revelation or any book of the Bible starting out here, and some of the church fathers did, you can go read the end of Augustine's Confessions on Genesis 1. Very bizarre. They would start out here and try to allegorize and symbolize everything. And you end up missing the main meaning of the text. And on top of that, if you start out here with fanciful symbolism, then you could make the text mean just about anything you want. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We are under Scripture, so we start with the plain meaning, but we don't have to stay there. Then we expand outward until we get a meaning that makes sense. Hopefully that makes a little sense. I'm just trying to orient you when you read the book of Revelation. Not everything in this book is to be taken exactly literal, but nor are we to just think it's all symbolism and you can make it mean just whatever you want it to mean. That's where you get G.K. Chesterton's bizarre commentators. You don't want to do that. All right, now you may say, okay, wow, those are some big words and this is getting complicated and I'm just trying to read the Bible. Well, let me entice you then. Those are the challenges. Let me tell you some of the rewards. Here it is you need to read and study Revelation if for no other reason than chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. Hey, that's me today. Blessed. The words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, that's you, and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So this is a book that has even practical application to your life. You have to hear it and keep it. And we'll talk about what that means. If you remember nothing else from today, and maybe you won't, remember this one thing. When you're reading the book of Revelation, the key, the interpretive key to the entire book, the reason that even if you don't understand every detail, you're going to greatly benefit from this book, is because the key of the book is the glory of Christ. And if you love the glory of Christ, you're going to read this book with some minor confusion on certain points, but you're going to read this book and your heart's just going to resonate. Again, Martin Luther, one of the reasons he rejected the book of Revelation, and I don't understand this at all, like, at all. But anyways, different time. And Luther said he read that book and he just didn't find Christ in it. (laughs) I thought, what? (laughs) Did you read the same one I'm reading? Because even this week, reading through this, Wow, your heart just resonates because where do you find such a glorious portrait of the risen and exalted Christ but in the book of Revelation? You know when you get to that part and he's on the white horse and he's got the sword in his mouth and he's coming to trample the vineyard of the Lord. Yes, it's like the climax of, I don't know, a Marvel movie or something. I don't watch those, but if you do, you know, the music gets intense, the hero comes, he's not messing around now, and he just defeats all the bad guys. That's the book of Revelation, and our heart just resonates with that. So if you approach Revelation with that, say, every chapter here, I want to see the glory of Christ, even if I don't fully know the symbolic, literal work on that, but you're going to see the glory of Christ regardless. That's why we love this book. All right, well, let's get into it. Uh, I'd encourage you to have a Bible open to Revelation because we are going to read some from it. There are different ways to break up the book of Revelation, uh, but I'll talk about this. Revelation actually is very highly structured, which we'll see here in just a second. Um, And the bulk of the book is three sets of seven judgments. That's Revelation. Three sets of seven judgments, which we'll see here in just a second. But before you get to those, those start in chapter 4. So you've got chapters one, two, three, which are kind of doing their own thing. Chapter 1 is going to, introduction, introduce us to what we're reading. And then chapters 2 and 3 are letters <clears throat> from Jesus to seven churches in Asia. You see the sevens? You see in those? That's one of the fun parts of Revelation is the numbers even. So let's just see the introduction. How does John, who's the author, the Apostle John, is the author. How does he set this up? Here's how he sets it up. You can see this in the very beginning of Revelation. It says, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who gave it? God gave it. So we've got to read it for that reason, too. Who did God give it to? He gave it to Jesus, actually. Why? So that Jesus could show it to his servants, it says he made Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So you see the it comes from God here. The message goes from God to Jesus to the angel Jesus sends to John who is on Patmos. P A T M O S. Patmos. And then from John it goes to seven churches who are in Asia. They're the recipients. So that you know this is likely the last book in the Bible written as well John is on the island Patmos he says in chapter 1 for the testimony of Jesus its persecution so he had he's the last surviving apostle the rest are most likely dead killed martyred John survives to older age and he's exiled as an old man from Ephesus he's exiled onto this island its this island i forget i think it's something like six or seven miles long and half a mile wide. Tiny little island. John's imprisoned there by the Roman Empire for saying Jesus is the king. They don't like that. So there he is. And while he's there, um, the Lord reveals the book of Revelation to him. I just wanted to include this verse because I'm not doing justice to the book of Revelation because there's so much that's so rich in here and we can't read it all. But just look at this, 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 what we call a triadic passage. It has every member of the Trinity in it. This triadic passage kind of sets you up for everything you're going to see in Revelation and it's just incredible. So let's read it here. Verses four and five, grace to you in peace. So that's, this is a letter, typical greeting, but look who it's from. Not the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father, like typical, but here. From him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and you who know the Old Testament well, that's all of you because you had a class on it, who is, who is the Lord, Yahweh. It's the meaning of the Lord's personal name, Yahweh is the one who is. There are 404 verses in Revelation, more than half or alluding to the Old Testament. It's abs- and look, John was not on the island of Patmos with a bunch of scrolls around him, you know, like looking stuff up. <laughs> this was just part of who John was as an old man. I mean, it was just in his mind. It may It be in ours too. So he's quoting all the time, and here he is. Him who is, that's Yahweh, and who was and who is to come, Alpha Omega, I was, prophets speak of God that way. Okay. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. That is going to be the story of Revelation, the glory of the triune God, especially focused on Christ, but you see it right there in the beginning. All right, what's going on in this book? John is on Patmos there. And he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, which we take to be today, the Lord's day. Jesus rose on Sunday. So first day of the week, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, verse 10. And verses 12 to 16 tell us that he is given a vision of Christ. And I wish I could read it, but we'd run out of time. But this is a glorious vision of Christ. It's like the transfiguration times two, you know, So read this sometime in those verses. It's absolutely incredible. And then in verse 19, after he has this vision, you see, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So John has heard this voice. Some people take verse 19 to be the outline of the book. Write the things that you have seen. That's the revelation of Christ that he just saw. So he wrote that, chapter 1 write the things that are, that's going to be chapters 2 and 3, which is Jesus' word to the churches in Asia in that day, and those that are to take place after this, chapters 4 to the end of the book, the future. So That's one way to break the book down right there in that verse. All right, that's the introduction. So John has heard a voice, he's seen the glory of Christ, and Jesus now communicates to him, I want you to write seven letters, this letter writes seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. That's chapters two and three. This is a very unique part of the book of Revelation, very different in some ways than the rest of the book. It's kind of its own thing. And some people will read chapters one, two, three, and then be done with Revelation. Don't do that. But these are very straightforward parts of Revelation every we're not going to go through everything he says to each church he goes one after another to Ephesus to Smyrna write this write this write this but every single one of them follows almost an identical pattern which has seven parts can you believe that crazy it's amazing most of them have seven parts first it says to the angel of the church in and then it gives the name Secondly, it then says the words of, and then it'll give a description of Jesus. Those descriptions in themselves are worth the book. Then it'll usually have something positive, like you hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans, a heretical cult back then, something like that. Then it'll often have something negative, like you hate their teaching, but you've left your first love. Then it'll have an exhortation, remember from where you fell, repent, do the deeds you did at first, or something like that. Then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, similar to what Jesus said in his own ministry often. And then lastly, he ends with just a crescendo of to the one who conquers, then a promise that usually has to do with what's going on at that church. The churches themselves are given here. You have Ephesus. Famously, they are the ones who left their first love. You know about that. You have Smyrna, they actually don't have anything negative said about them, but they're told there's going to be 10 days of affliction as the devil tries to destroy them and they just need to hold fast. Then you've got Pergamum, and again, not much negative here, but it said, you dwell where Satan's throne is. Again, I don't think you have to take that literally. I think that is symbolism. It's not like we should go to Pergamum today, it's still a place. And be terrified of it because Satan's throne's literally there. No, he's just saying there's a heavy concentration of the devil's work there. A lot of persecution. Thyatira, famously, mostly is about a woman called Jezebel. Again, that's drawing on the Old Testament wife of Ahab who led him into idolatry and evil in Israel. But this Jezebel would refer to some kind of false teacher who's encouraging immorality among the people. Then you have Sardis. Famously, you think you're alive, you're dead, spiritually dead. So it's mostly just a rebuke to them. Philly, Philadelphia, and they are famously told because they've kept God's word faithfully in persecution, they will be kept from the time of persecution that's coming, interestingly. And lastly, Laodicea, lukewarm, maybe the most famous besides Ephesus. Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold, but since you're not, I will spit you out of my mouth. So you can go read these on your own time. This is the easiest part of Revelation to apply directly to your life. So if you want an easy intro to Revelation, go to chapters 2 and 3. Very good. Now we get to the hard stuff. (laughs) Lord, help us all here. Seven, seven, seven judgments. So the bulk of the book, before we get to the last two chapters, which are kind of the conclusion, the bulk of the book of Revelation is patterned very intentionally on sevens, three sevens, three judgments that have to do with seven. This part of the book, after the letters to the churches, starts at the beginning of chapter four. So you flip over there, the first verse there. After this I looked, he's still on Patmos, it's John. He's heard this voice from Jesus, write these things, but he's still there on Patmos. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the ESV has an exclamation mark, and that's probably very appropriate. (laughs) It's like, whoa, in heaven, a door. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this of why we're futurists, it must take place after this. And so up he goes through that door into heaven to have a vision. So part of the reason that a lot of what John sees is very symbolical is because Jesus is showing him a symbolic representation of the future. So he's not necessarily seeing it play out exactly at every point, but he's seeing a symbolic representation of the future. Like I said, here's the structure. If you know the three sevens, you know the book of Revelation. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. These are interlocking, and what that means is the rest of this book of Revelation, you will have each of the seals broken and a judgment that goes with each one. When you get to the seventh seal... The seventh seal opens into seven trumpets, and then each of the trumpets have a judgment. When you get to the seventh trumpet, it opens into seven bowls of wrath, and then you have the seven bowls of wrath, and when you get to the seventh bowl of wrath, we're done. So that's the way it's kind of like it's blossoming up. Maybe a bad metaphor for judgments, but that's what's happening is seven, which open into seven, which open into seven. This is why the book of Revelation is fun. I mean, it's just amazing the way it's structured. We won't talk about other numbers that are used in the book of Revelation, but you'll notice them as soon as you read them. You'll see sevens, twelves, tens, sixes, I think maybe a four, one or two fours, three for the Trinity. You'll see pairs of two. You'll see 1,000, and then you'll see some multiplied, like the New Jerusalem is twelve. Thousand stadia, but the thickness of its walls is 144 cubits as 12 times 12. Okay, so just enjoy yourself. This book is really remarkable just in the imagery and the use of numbers. Don't, please don't become a numerologist and say, Well, if that's like that, maybe everywhere else in the Bible, every number has a mystical meaning. It does not. (laughs) Sometimes it does, but again, start with the simple, but clearly. John, in this book, is using symbolic numbers at times. Not always, but at times. Good to keep in mind. So the sevens, that's what we have here. All right, let's jump into it. We're starting with the seven seals. Chapters four and five set us up for the seals. You say seals, like or, or, or? No, (laughs) seals on a scroll. So where does this scroll come from? That's what chapters four and five are about. What you have in chapters 4 and 5, which for many people is the best part of the book of Revelation, maybe besides chapters 21 and 22, but I mean, this is rich. That's why you can't stop at chapter 3, I'm telling you. I know it's the easiest part. But chapters 4 and 5 are incredible. You have now a vision of God upon His throne. And it's a glorious vision. You have 24 elders surrounding him. His throne is absolutely amazing. He's absolutely amazing. It's a representation of him that's amazing, drawing on Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Just amazing. And the four living creatures from Ezekiel are there. Everyone's worshiping. Then you have these masses of people from every nation, tribe, tongue. They're worshiping. So it's like the most exciting worship service of all time. And it's happening in heaven. And John is witnessing this happen. This is where you have things like, I think I have it here. Yes, one of my favorite verses, 5.12. They're crying out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So you have this big throne room. This is going on. But then things get really sad, so much so that John starts weeping. And the reason is there's a scroll and it has seven seals keeping it closed. And they look for someone worthy to open the scroll, and there's no one worthy to open the scroll. So John thinks it'll have to be closed forever, and that's frustrating. If you want to know what's in that scroll, and now you can't. But then they find one who is worthy, and it is. Worthy is the Lamb, the Lion of Judah. It's Jesus Christ, figured as a Lamb. Again, that's symbolical, not literally a Lamb, right? That's a symbol. And He's worthy, and so Now we get into the seven seals where Jesus himself is breaking one seal after another to open this scroll. Revelation comes from the Greek word apokalypsis, which has the idea of revealing something that's hidden. And you see that even in these judgments, we're revealing what's in the scroll. So that's what's happening. So chapter 6 and, yeah, just chapter 6 shows us what happens when each of the seals break. So famously, the first four of the seals, each of those, when it's broken, John sees a horse of a different color with a rider on top of it. And each of the horses represent a particular judgment. So you have, oh, sorry, I didn't give you this. There we go. It's lamb. All right. Each of the horses represent a different judgment. I think I'm in the right spot. Yes. So here are the colors that you have right here. You have a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. So one of the horses represents famine. You have another one where it's warfare. So these are terrible judgments, lots of people dying. And these are judgments that God is bringing on the earth. Because right now God's being patient. He's waiting for people to repent. But that doesn't last forever. So now these judgments come upon the earth. The fifth and sixth seals actually don't have a judgment per se. Well, the fifth one, I should say. The fifth one's not a judgment. When the fifth one's broken, there are souls under the altar in the heavenly temple. And those souls cry out to God, how long till we're done, you know? How long till you... We've been killed by these people. How long till you avenge us fully? And he says, here's some white robes. You just wait. It's coming. And then when the sixth one breaks, there is a massive, supernatural, cataclysmic disaster. There's some question here of how we relate the three sets of seven judgments in time. There's something called recapitulation again. What did? Theologians have big words. (laughs) But the idea here is that it's possible that you go through these judgments because when you get to the sixth one, it looks like we just blew the earth up, you know? It looks like it's done. But then you go back and there's more judgments. So, it might be that there's some recapitulating. There's some we go through, we go back in time a little bit for judgments and we go through. That's possible, I don't know, you know? Go ask somebody smarter about that. But We do know that these things happen in the future nonetheless, and that sixth seal is a doozy. I mean, it's earthquake, destruction, it's massive. This is when, just like fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, people are going in the caves and they're saying, mountains, fall on us. It'd be better to be crushed by mountains than have to deal with the wrath of the Lamb that's coming on the earth now. So it's serious stuff. All right. What you find usually toward the end of each of the set of sevens is kind of like a side story. It's connected to what's happening, but usually he'll go through a series of judgments, and then he'll give you something on the side. And what he does in this case is when we get to chapter seven, the seventh seal is broken, and then it leads right into this story um, about 144,000 who are sealed. You guys know math. You see some numbers going on here. That's what happens is there's 12,000 sealed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So 12,000 times 12, and you have 144,000. These are not the elect of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I promise you that. That's an odd view that came out of this. It is not true. I think it's Jehovah's Witnesses have that view. It's not true. Um, But they are sealed from Israel. Possibly, probably, ethnic Jewish persons. That's how it reads straightforwardly here. Revelation 7 then goes into another glorious scene room. It's just like chapters 4 and 5. You kind of have a similar scene happen. I quote it here just because it's, well, really beautiful, actually. After this I looked. So you just had all these massive judgments. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number, And here is one of the greatest impetuses we have for international missions. So if you're considering international missions, going overseas, bringing the gospel in a place that doesn't have it or has less of it, here's why you're doing it in part. Because one day from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, they stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. They cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And Amazingly, we're involved in bringing that about. God's using us to reach the nations so that that's the outcome. Like you've heard, I think, Piper say, missions exist because worship doesn't. We're drawing on passages like this. We want worship to happen. All right, that's the end of the first sevens, the seven seals. The scroll is open. And you say, what did the scroll say? <laughs> it doesn't tell us, actually. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. But the seventh one opens into another set of sevens, and it's the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath pretty much read like you're in Exodus, reading the plagues that God sent on Exodus. The Exodus, when God delivered His people out of Egypt a long time ago, is an archetype, it is a picture for all time, of God's work of salvation. Our own salvation in Christ looks a lot like that. We're in bondage, we're brought out, we're delivered from our enemies and our sin. Here you have John kind of drawing back on this great act of Exodus. Because a big part of Exodus was not just like going through the Red Sea and being saved, it was God showing how powerful He is over against the Egyptians and their gods. The trumpets and the seals are just like that. So it reads like the plagues of Egypt. When you get to the end of the trumpets, so God is just obliterating the world. A third of this is destroyed, a third of that is destroyed. But when you get to the end of it, just like Pharaoh hardened his heart, so the whole world will harden its heart. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You then have, like I said, usually when you're getting toward the end of one of these sevens, you have kind of an aside with some other information. So you have an interesting passage, an angel with a little scroll, and it has to be little because God tells John, eat it. Okay, takes it, eats it, tastes very sweet, but when it gets in his stomach, it's bitter. Probably a picture of the judgments of God. Chapter 11, you have famously two witnesses that God sends, We're not told who they were. You can think it's Enoch and Elijah. That's fine. I don't know who it is. I don't know who it is. But these two witnesses God sends, and they do these great miracles, and they're killed. And everyone in the world, since they didn't repent and they're all wicked, rejoice and actually send gifts. It's like a holiday. Hooray! The witnesses are dead. But then they come back alive, and they're called up to heaven, and more judgments follow. You have an aside at this point, so that's Right there two witnesses you have an aside at this point and it is to introduce to you the bad guys chapter 12 famously you have a dragon this is symbolical satan is not literally a dragon however it speaks of the dragon that serpent of old pointing back to the garden of eden this is clearly referring to satan it's calling him a dragon he is a bad guy and that's fitting because even today in our movies the dragon's usually bad not always usually you know you got to go fight the dragon. Basically, there is a woman, this is a symbol, a picture, a woman giving birth, and the child represents Jesus being born. And so the woman gives birth to this child, and the dragon is there ready to eat the child because Satan tried to have Jesus killed and wants to stamp him out still. But God takes the child away to safety, takes the woman away to safety, the dragon is furious, takes a third of the angels because he's fallen with them, and is engaged in warfare against God, but is, as you know, unsuccessful. Picture of that. Then you have the two beasts. There's a beast from the sea. There is a beast from the land. That one is also called the false prophet. Here you have, just like in chapter 1, we saw the triadic passage of the Holy Trinity. Here you have Satan making a mockery of the Holy Trinity by his own unholy trinity. You have the dragon. You have the beast from the sea. You have the beast from the land, or you have The Antichrist is probably one of those, and you have the false prophet. Uh, This is where you get this famous verse that has caused no end of speculations. 1318, this calls for wisdom, let the one who has understanding, so if that's you, come talk to me after, calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. We won't get into that, but... Hebrew and Greek of the ancient world, there were numbers that corresponded to letters. So, it's possible to take this as referring to Nero or not. Actually, in Hebrew, it would have been Vav, 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 which we transliterate into English as W, which is part of the reason when the internet first came around, people thought that's the mark of the beast, W, 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 see that? It's not. You can use the internet. It's fine. Then chapter 14, you have a being come down. Hard to know if that's Jesus or an angel. Comes with a sickle, and it says, put in for the harvest. So we, we're having a picture of final judgment, which Jesus said it would be like a harvest of pulling out those who are wicked, redeeming those who are not. All right, last set of sevens here as we finish up. It leads into the seven bowls. Good here, Revelation 15 talks about seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Each of the bowls is poured out on the earth, poured on the rivers, poured here, poured there. This is where the thirds die, I think. Again, it's like the Egyptian plagues. Chapters 17 through 19 talk about the fall of Babylon. Babylon fell a long time ago, (laughs) before this was written. Babylon is a picture of Rome, I believe, there's seven mountains that this harlot Babylon sits on. like Rome was founded on seven mountains. But I think it also has a future orientation. The Antichrist and his kingdom is like a Babylon. Really, the whole world system is like a Babylon. Revelation 19.11, we already talked about that, but that's the good part. Go read that part. You'll love that part. Jesus on his white horse. Chapter 20, look. You want to get into it, and we're not going to do it. But here we are, what's called pre-millennialists, and that has a lot to do with this chapter of the Bible. This is not the only part of it. It has to do with the whole Testament and how it relates God's promises to the new. But chapter 20 has a millennium of Christ ruling on earth. That's the straightforward reading, and we believe that's going to happen. It's a thousand years, which can be symbolical, but again, straightforward reading. I don't think there's a reason to take it symbolically, so that's our view here. Either way, it's awesome. And then you get to chapter 20 later on, the great white throne judgment. All the dead are brought before Christ. Books are opened. 20.11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, him who is seated on it, that's Christ, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Where are they going to go? Amazing. That's the end. The end that leads to the end, that is, This chapter's 21 and 22, you hear at funerals, but wow, rightly so. Beautiful ending to Revelation and to all of God's purposes here on earth right now. I won't read this because we're out of time, but you know the passage at the beginning of 21. God's going to wipe away all the tears. He's making everything new. I mean, even the book of Revelation is stressful to read because the judgments, but that is to clear away so that God can make all things new a complete restoration. We're going to experience that. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, you're not going to be up on a cloud like some cherub baby from medieval times with a little harp. That's not going to be you. You're not going to be a disembodied spirit floating around like a ghost. You're going to be in a body that's a lot like the one you have, but, you know, not like the one you have also. It's going to be better. You're going to be on an earth. We're going to be on an earth. But a new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and unites heaven and earth so that God's presence is here. So then you don't need faith anymore. You just go see Jesus. He'll be on his throne in Jerusalem. It's going to be very good. And then the book ends, a new Jerusalem, and the book ends with this conclusion, part of which is Jesus saying, behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So hopefully from this you draw, you need to read the book of Revelation. See the glory of Christ and be encouraged by the fact that no matter what's happening in your life right now, Jesus definitely wins in the end. So let me pray to finish us. Jesus, thank you for this amazing and glorious picture of you. If this were not in our Bible, we would be so much poorer for it. If we had to give up our homes, our cars, uh, our, the full amount of our bank accounts this moment to have this book, that would be an absolute steal for us, quite the bargain. Thank you that you freely have given us this revelation so that we can be encouraged in hard times just like the early church suffered a hostile culture. So we suffer a hostile culture and one that grows more and more so, but we take heart because, Jesus, you've overcome the world and will overcome it. Help us, like the saints in this book, to be faithful to the end, even unto death, and to receive our place in that kingdom which is to come. For the glory of your name we pray.